Well, thank you so much for the invitation today, and what a privilege it is to be here. Today we're just going to explore a fairly short passage in the book of Mark, the calling of Jesus' first disciples now. So as, Jesus called, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. So when I first read this passage, the first thing I noticed is the disciples' response. I spent a fair bit of time thinking about it, and it really made me quite uncomfortable. Um, I thought of my own possible response, and that's probably why I felt that way. And I think I wouldn't have responded the same way the disciples did. I really struggled to understand why Andrew, Simon, James, and John behaved in this way. How could they leave everything behind to follow Jesus? How radical is that? You know, in today's world, we might just call it being reckless. Um, with our conventional wisdom, we would ask, was that really the wisest thing to do? Leaving their vocation, a job that they've been in for a little while, um, getting out of the family business, leaving family members behind, your social network, financial security, familiarity, your comfort zone. How could they leave everything? How could they leave all this to follow Jesus? You know, how could they decide so quickly without getting more information, uh, without consulting others about it? There were so many loose ends. What about the boat? What about the family business? What about Zebedee, their father? Um, how long were they going to follow Jesus for? So something is going on here from a cultural perspective that we don't fully comprehend. But for Mark's audience and the other gospel authors who included this story, they knew exactly what was happening. So let's unpack this story a little bit. When I asked my daughter Audrey, what would you like to do when you grow up? Uh, you know, it's a fairly common question to ask kids at that age. It highlights her current thoughts and her interests. And she said to me, I want to be a ballerina and a baby doctor. So it's an interesting combo. Now, Cindy has an interesting combo as well. So she, when she was young, she said she wanted to be an interior architect and, surprise, surprise, a missionary. So she, Cindy's just gifted with this gift for art, and she is creative. So she's already ticked it off ticked off interior architecture. She studied it, and she actually worked in it. Um, and for myself, I like playing video games. <laughs> I played it so much as a kid, um, I wish I could do it as a job. And my parents, of course, they noticed, and they said to me, typical Asian parents, you cannot make money playing video games. <laughs> and they were right. Back then, you just couldn't make money. You couldn't do it for a living. But fast forward to today, that's not the case anymore. I wish I was born 10 years later, 
video games would have been a serious possibility. Now, in Jesus' time, if you ask Simon, Andrew, James, and John, or any other Jewish man, what their dream was as a young boy, they would all pretty much tell you the same thing. Their dream was to be a sage, a rabbi, a teacher of the law. Now, this was because the teachers of the Torah, or what we would call the Old Testament, they were the most esteemed, you know, the most respected people in Jewish society. So everybody wanted to be that. So the competition to become a rabbi was intense. So how does one become a rabbi? So at the age of five, um, Jewish children begin studying the Torah. So both, both boys and girls. And we'll call this level one, um, but it's really properly known as Beisefa. So at, this, at the end of level one, um, the girls are finished, but the top boys move on to level two. Level two is known as Betalmud. And they, they go through this level between the age of 10 to 13. So they study even more, they memorize even more, and they begin learning the art of asking good questions. Um, this is an interesting cultural phenomenon. In Judaism, the mark of a good student is not in the answers they give, but in the questions they ask. So in a debate, a question being asked is responded with a question. And the reply is an answer that's packaged with the follow-up question in order to keep discussion going. So in fact, we see this a lot with Jesus. When he was asked a question, he, for example, on fasting or the Sabbath, he would respond with a question. So now the top boys of level two move on to level three, and level three is known as Beit Midrash, and the boys who didn't make the cut, they would basically transition to a trade, and typically it's the family trade. So that could be a carpenter, it could be a fisherman, uh, and we just watched that video on, on the fisherman, that was great. So level three begins for boys aged 13 to 15, and the cream of the crop of level three would then try and become a disciple. So let me give you an analogy uh, in order to help us understand just how hard it is to progress through these levels of education. So using the context of basketball, I'm pretty sure, Jesus Christ, we have a thing with basketball, and I like playing basketball. I was a kid, played a lot of basketball as well. So level one is basically making the school team at your primary school. Basically anyone, as long as you put your hand up. And level two is being good enough to make it into your high school team. Level three is university level. So think American collegiate level. So think NCAA, they're on TV. So really, uh, only a small percentage of basketball players actually get to this stage. And being a disciple is like making it into the NBA as a draft pick. So, how, so here's how it's done. To become a disciple, you would pursue a rabbi to study under. So you would go up to that rabbi, you say, hey, I want to be your disciple, and the rabbi basically has an interview with you. He's going to ask you a whole heap of questions, trying to find out if you could become just like him, so just like the rabbi. So if the goal of, the, of a disciple wasn't just to learn what his rabbi taught, but to become like his rabbi, then being accepted as a disciple meant that you're not only learning from your rabbi's teaching, 
but you're also observing, and I mean everything, you're observing everything about your rabbi. Things like his behavior, the way he spoke, the way he responded in certain situations, his habits. And to do that, you'd have to be physically close with your rabbi, literally follow your rabbi wherever he went. So, in fact, there's a Hebrew saying that translates to this, to be powdering yourself with the dust of your rabbi's feet. So it's this idea that you're following so closely behind your rabbi that as they walked, the dust kicked up by their feet would cover your clothes. So that's how they try and, that's how they try and communicate how close you want to be with your rabbi. A disciple would follow his rabbi until about the age of 30 in order to finally be recognized as a rabbi himself. So now that we have an idea of the cultural context, I hope the passage is making sense for you. And as much as the information is, is good, is great, what does it mean for us? So when Jesus says, come, follow me, He's extending the invitation to Simon, Andrew, James, and John to switch vocations, to be trained by Jesus, to become his disciple, to observe Jesus, and to work on becoming just like Jesus. So in the eyes of Simon, Andrew, James, and John, they've just been offered an amazing opportunity. They get to realize their childhood dreams, one that they thought was abandoned when they basically failed to make the cut uh, in their youth. And I just want to draw your attention um, to the fact that it was Jesus who pursued them. We just learned that basically the disciple is the one who goes to the rabbi. Jesus broke tradition. And I believed even today, Jesus is extending the same invitation to us to walk closely behind him, to learn from him, to understand what it means to follow after him. So when I was about 18, Jesus extended that invitation to me. Um, that's when I encountered him and I became a follower of him. My life before I met Jesus was pretty much planned out for me. I come from uh, Malaysia, so I, I'm from a non-Christian family, and my parents, they had high expectations for me. They wanted me to do really well in my studies, um, and they sent me here to Australia for university because they knew it would mean having an edge for the start of my corporate career. And I was going to climb that ladder, and I was going to make lots of money. And that was what they thought was going to happen. When I got to Perth, I met Cindy. <laughs> Uh, and eventually we became close. We were about to start dating, and Cindy dropped this bomb on me. She said, you need to know that I have a heart for missions, and my future husband would need to share that vision. <laughs> so I ended up saying, let me find out more about this, because I, honestly, I was... I was completely ignorant about cross-cultural missions. And as much as uh, Mike mentioned last week, I watched, he said, oh, we were both you know, into missions before we met. And I was like, no, actually, no, that didn't happen. <laughs> um, so eventually I said, yep, let's be involved in mission together, even though I was open to it, but 
I was really still just as ignorant as before. I was trying to win Cindy. And after we got married, we attended a course together. That was the first thing we did. So we attended a course called Kairos course. And I don't know if you've heard of that course before. But that course shaped my understanding of mission. And I learned so much through that course. But, but the biggest impact out of it was learning that we get to partner with God in his mission to reach the ends of the earth, especially to places where there are little opportunity for others to hear about Jesus. So at this point in our journey, we were burdened for people that did not have much access or contact with Christianity. So the more technical term is unreached people groups. And we were visiting different mission organizations trying to decide which one would we be a fit with. And as we went for these meetings, one of the mission organizations highlighted Japan. And interestingly, Japan was on my list of places to visit. So I've been wanting to visit Japan since the time I was about 16. Um, a friend of mine had introduced me to Japanese animation and comics. So there was Dragon Ball, there was Naruto. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Uh, it sparked an interest in, J in Japanese culture. And we learned that Japan was one of the largest unreached people groups in the world. Uh, basically the second largest. 120 million people. And only 1% of the population identify as Christian. So Japan is a massive harvest field. Like the one that is described in Matthew 9. And there's a huge need for more workers. So we begin praying for Japan, um, asking God to confirm if that's where we should go. Um, we planned a holiday there and took the opportunity to meet with OMF Japan. Um, we had a bunch of questions uh, we wanted to ask them, so we asked, you know, why was the number of Christians so low? Why is Japan so resistant to the gospel of Jesus? What are the requirements for us to go to Japan? And little did I know how challenging that question would turn out to be. I thought I was going to check off boxes so we could get to Japan. Things like our application into OMF, um, completing seminary. But God was looking at the heart requirement. And my life that was planned out for me, my personal, my personal plans and goals, how I thought I was going to live my life, being in control of my finances, my career, the expectations my parents had for me, Jesus said, lay them down. Lay them down before me in surrender and obedience. And I'm reminded of Matthew 16, 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. So when Jesus invited us to follow him, he also makes it clear there is a cross to carry. It was basically saying no to my plans. Um, and God led me through a journey of self-reflection, placing mentors around me to help guide me through that season, um, through this process of denying myself, my desires, and reminding us of the promises um, he has for us. So it was difficult trying to do this, and it's, and I, and, you know, it's not an overnight process. And I'm still learning to do it today. Um, as, as we choose to obey, Mike asks, you know, how do we feel about parenting? Oh, we're so anxious. How are we, how we going to do, how are they going to do in Japan? Are they going to cope? Is this the right thing to be doing? 
taking our family there and and I'm reminded of that one percent, you know, that cost of what we think the cost is, it's nothing compared to people who've never heard, and that's gonna cost them their eternity. So there was a time when I remember Cindy and I spoke to my parents about our plans to go to Japan. And at that time, we were visiting them in Malaysia. They are still not yet followers of Jesus. And we told them, and they were just so flat out against it, uh, especially my mom. And I was so heartbroken because in their eyes, I was their biggest investment. And I was not going to give them the return they expected. And I was not going to meet their definition of success. Uh, and yeah, I cried so much that night. So the next, I mean, we were so discouraged from that conversation. Cindy and I just prayed to God again, asking him to confirm the call to Japan. And the next morning, the four of us head out to a market for breakfast. And it's, you know, it's a market. It's busy. It's noisy. Um, there's, there's a huge crowd. But somehow, a Japanese couple who were on holiday in Malaysia approached us, asking for directions. I thought, surely this is not a coincidence. God's answering our prayer. So what felt like it was two steps backwards after that conversation with my parents became an experience that encouraged us to keep going. You see, right there, God showed up in the market, and in the midst of our personal battles, he reminds us that we're not alone and he is always walking with us. So in our journey of following him and, and walking in obedience, we will no doubt face all kinds of trials. Um, it can be discouraging, it can be heartbreaking, and maybe it could even make us doubt whether we're on the right path. And I mean, it's happened so often to us. Should we go? Should we stay? Let's go. No, let's stay. And we're still struggling with it even today. Um, so we, we need to be reminded that, yeah, God is there for us. Let's realign ourselves back to his will and let him lead us. So from the time we've been called to Japan, it's been an eight-year journey, and we have seen God's faithfulness and grace as we take steps of obedience towards his plans. My parents have been able to follow along our journey, and they've softened significantly. And in fact, my dad is now seeking and open to Jesus. Um, and this has really been a blessing that's come because we've been faithful, we've been obedient. And as I wrap this up, I want to leave you uh, with, this, with this question today. What, what small steps would you need to take so that your willingness and obedience to Jesus would continue to grow as you're covered by the dust of his feet? Wherever you are, wherever he has placed you, may you continue to trust in his plans for your life. Become more and more like Jesus and follow him closely.